This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads here on WGVU Radio. And folks, i got to tell you, sometimes I am so out of the loop on things it kills me. You know, I've never seen American Idol or Survivor. As a matter of fact, I just had to think to myself, what's the name of that show where they kick people off the island? Yeah, it is Survivor. Another thing that I haven't done that the rest of the literate world has done is read the mega bestseller, The Da Vinci Code. Those of you who know me, either personally or even just through this radio show, might figure that it's really quite up my alley, but honestly, it's just never pulled me in. I actually do have a copy of the book on tape sitting in my house right now, and someone gave it to me maybe a year ago. And one of these days, I just may take it on a road trip. And perhaps after today's interview, I'll get really psyched to do this. With The Da Vinci Code followed several articles and books that denounced it, demonized it, and refuted it. Fair enough, but it wasn't until local historian Joellen Clary mentioned that Sharon Newman had written a book decoding the code, so to speak. And the nice part about this book is that Sharon, a medieval historian who has been on this program before, does not have a horse in this race. That is, she is a Jew and she has no passionate interest in whether or not Jesus and Mary Magdalene ever picked out China patterns together. In her new book, The Real History Behind the Da Vinci Code, she deals with the cold, hard facts, at least as we currently understand them. It's a book with no other agenda than to clarify and question. Sharon Newman is a longtime member of the Medieval Academy. She served on the advisory board for the Medieval Association of the Pacific and is a Ph.D. candidate at UC Santa Barbara. Newman's Medieval French Mysteries have garnered the McCavity Award as well as the Agatha and Anthony nominations. And uh, as I say, she has been on Common Threads before for one of her Medieval Mysteries. Sharon, it's so good to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. So, so Sharon, tell me, what was uh, your motivation for writing this book? Well, it's a, a sort of a long story, but uh, I'll try to give you the short form. I really hadn't thought of reading The Da Vinci Code. I got a, an advanced reading copy of it, and I just went into a pile. But um, about two summers ago, people started buttonholing me at parties, uh, generally not to uh, ask me questions, but to tell me things like, tell me all about the Templars. Now, they knew I was a medieval historian, and you would think that they would realize that I'd probably heard of the Templars. But instead, they wanted to tell me all these wonderful things they had just learned about the Templars, none of which made any sense to me. And it wasn't until my sister came over one day and said, I just read the Da Vinci Code. I didn't know all this stuff, and started to tell me stuff. And I said, Kay, you still don't know all that stuff. It just isn't true. So I finally read the book and uh, decided that since some of it was even part of my dissertation, at least some of the facts that or so-called facts that he stated, that it really just needed some kind of background explanation. So what I really try to do is not, as you said, I'm not interested in refuting it because a lot of it is just based on faith, but um, in giving people uh, an encyclopedic, from Apocrypha to Christopher Wren, a list of different things in the book with a lot of background on them, and also with a reading list, some explanation, things that people, normal people don't study, but medievalists do. And you know, uh, you mentioned, I believe, in your introduction that as opposed to uh, something that's just out to, to trash the code entirely... It's a wonderful companion piece because uh, it's written section by section. If you're if you're reading the Da Vinci Code and all of a sudden you want to know a little bit more about Mary Magdalene, you just open up the book to the chapter on Mary Magdalene. If you want to learn something about the Holy Grail, you you go to the chapter on the Holy Grail. So it's it's not something that necessarily has to be 
uh, you, you don't have to sit down and read it cover to cover and then read the Da Vinci Code or vice versa. You can, you can use it as a companion. And, and uh, I've got to say that nothing has encouraged me to actually read the code other than reading your book. It it's, uh, sounds oh, thank like... thank you. And, and, and I will say this, too, that uh, a number of people who are very devout Orthodox Christians, with, Orthodox with a small o, uh, have said it really is a wonderful book from a, from a literary standpoint. They say it's a page turner. They couldn't put it down. D- do you agree with that? Was was it a oh, good definitely. book? It's 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 a, it's a thriller, and in some in some ways, it's actually um, since it's set in the near future, it, it could almost be listed under sort of uh, some kind of like science fiction sort of thing because it's a futuristic novel in that sense. But um, it, it's definitely a page turner, and uh, it's it's a great book just for you know beach reading, plane reading. It it uh, pulls you in and it holds you. And also, it does. The characters just give you a whole lot of facts, and a lot of times you're hit so fast with them that it's very difficult to sort of sort them out. And really, that's that was my intention to sort things out for people. Do you think that a lot of the people who really have enjoyed the code? do so because of its, let's say, rebellious attitude towards organized Christianity, particularly the Church? Oh, I think, um, I think in a lot of ways, yes. Uh, I think they are differentiating Catholicism from the Vatican uh, and, and the hierarchy of the Church. And, of course, with you know, the scandals in the, in the Church today and um, with the general feelings now that you know that the governments and and other organizations are in control and we're not i think this book is does touch a, a, a chord in people in the very beginning of the book it it talks about something and i don't have it right in front of me it but it says it's about this the french society and it says this is a fact do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yes, yes. Uh, he that's was one of the. Uh, it might have been a great marketing ploy. Who knows uh, that that all of the rights and the architecture and the organizations in the book actually exist. And that just ain't necessarily so, correct? Well, we could start right with the architecture, which can be, be easily proved to be totally inaccurate. As a matter of fact, the French edition of the Da Vinci Code had to make several changes because. French people would know that that the architecture of some of the buildings that the things take place in is completely wrong. And what about for those of us uh, who are not in in France? What is is just easily apparent is is being incorrect. Well, uh, don't try to follow his directions around the Louvre. You'll find yourself bumping into walls a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a very simple one. Things that one can see, he says you can see something from one place, and the only way you could see a, see that one, like see the Eiffel Tower from wherever he said is if everything else were torn down in between. Or he has um, a building that he invents, the, the Directory Bank of Zurich, which is a good idea, because I wouldn't want to use a real Swiss bank. They have no sense of humor, you know. Um, but he places it in a, a corner of Paris, and then says it's next to something that's absolutely on the other side of Paris. So it's, it, I there's nothing in Paris that's accurate. Isn't um, have you heard that there are like like tour groups, Da Vinci Code tour groups who are uh, traveling around with tour guides mm-hmm. and and oh, yes. I yes. mean this really has created a, a quite a fascinating. I'm going to use the word cult. Uh, do you know if most of these people who are on these uh, uh, tour guides, are they, are they fans just like Star Trek fans? Are they Trekkies? Uh, they don't necessarily you know, believe? I honestly don't know. I think a lot of people uh, really don't believe. I think they thought, think that it would be fun because they enjoyed the book and they'd like to see the places that it's set in. You know, France, London, Scotland, those aren't exactly hardship places. So it's, it's a nice way to plan a tour. And uh, I even know the owner of one of the buildings, uh, Chateau Villette, which uh, is very much as described in the book, uh, has arranged for tours. For People can now stay at the Chateau and do a Da Vinci tour from it. Hmm. 
What I'd like to do is go through the book and uh, uh, pick on a few of the chapters that caught my eye, that, and that I truly learned something. And maybe it will be, uh, it'll prove to be a benefit that I have not read the code, because that way our conversation isn't going to be completely in. Uh, and so the folks who are listening to this who haven't read the code will, will not feel like we're in our own secret society. Uh, you, you start off with a chapter on the Apocrypha, um, and you do a wonderful job of explaining the Apocrypha, and perhaps we can do that a little bit now, and tell us why it is so important in the Code. Well, Dan Brown, I think, or at least his characters, don't really understand what the Apocrypha is. The Apocrypha are books that did not make it into the canonical New Testament and the Old Testament. There are several Apocryphal books um, in the Old Testament. That, but that doesn't mean that they were particularly repressed or suppressed, although I mean, some of them were heretical, and at least according to the, the, uh, the majority of the, of the church councils and so forth. And so they were simply ignored. Others had absolutely nothing to do with Christianity or Judaism. Others were um, just too repetitive or obviously very late like 3rd or 4th century even. So these were just ignored and left out. But they weren't suppressed in the sense that most of them, or at least versions of them, circulated and became folk literature or secondary literature uh, in, in both Christianity and Judaism. And so the book sort of has this idea that there were a lot of things that were purposely suppressed, like uh, burned books and so forth, and that um, there is a deep secret that the Church has been hiding from the rest of the world. Okay, so I just go through uh, the Apocrypha, and especially he talks about the Nag Hammadi books, and I describe them a little, I explain what Apocrypha is, as I just did, and then I describe both the Nag Hammadi books and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Again, there are things in the, the Nag Hammadi books and the Dead Sea Scrolls that we hadn't, didn't have before, but there are also copies of things that we knew quite well that had been around in other copies. So, and I, what I really also do is encourage the reader of both my book and the Da Vinci Code, if they're really interested, to just go find these books themselves and get tran in translation. There are several good translations. So you don't have to take Dan Brown's word for it or mine. Readers can go find out for themselves. Now, some of the books that are in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible, such as Maccabees and Sirach, are, are those considered apocryphal? Yes, and they're actually considered apocryphal in the Catholic Bible. They're in the Bible. They're listed there, but they're, but they're listed as apocrypha. That, that it's like saying, these are good stories, but we don't really believe them. <laughs> And how does he use the Apocrypha? You say you, you're not sure that he understands what the Apocrypha are. In, in what way would you say that this I is think evident? He, he, he believes that the Apocrypha um, are basically sort of secret, esoteric documents that um, are guidelines for the real Church, the, the true original Church, and that everything that's in the... the New Testament, both Protestant and Catholic, and Greek Orthodox even, is is really uh, sort of a um, conspiracy by the by the Orthodox uh, Church, starting with the, the Roman Church um, in 325, to uh, to sort of dominate and suppress uh, the the true Christianity. Ah, uh, you also have <clears throat> excuse me. You also have a chapter uh, here on Christmas and the date of December twenty fifth. How does that play into the code? Actually, that's just mentioned, but it's one of those things. There are so many things that are just mentioned in passing that are used to build up this idea that um, uh, that Chris, there, there, that there are pagan things in Christianity that Christians weren't aware of, and of course, Christmas is a, a date that was decided arbitrarily. And it was intended to correspond to dates where, when the Romans already celebrated things. It was it was a, a natural thing that the the early church um, fathers decided to help wean people away from their old pagan rites by giving them Christian uh, alternatives to celebrate. 
Right. But so you're saying it's not terribly important to the story of the code. No, I put in a lot of things that I found interesting that uh, are just part of the, the, the story. Things that people asked me about while I was writing it. There were several things that I hadn't intended on putting in, but my editor and my agent were both curious, and therefore they came in. Ah, okay. Um, and how about the uh, Codex uh, Leicester? Am I Lester, the Leicester Codex. Leicester. Yeah, the, the Leicester Codex is a, a, a book that uh, Da Vinci wrote, and it, it's mentioned in the book, and it's, but it's also an example of a lot of the, th- the work of Leonardo da Vinci. Again, he is supposed to, Leonardo is supposed to have been the leader of a secret society. Um, his, a lot of his writings, according to Brown, are symbolic and mystical and hint at the society and are only intended to be read by the Cognoscenti. So um, I, I put in a lot of the different things about, about Leonardo, about his paintings, uh, about the Codex Lester and so forth, in my book, again, to give people background. Sometimes it's just information on things that are, is only mentioned, are only mentioned briefly in the book that I think people might be interested in. And other times it's to clarify points that uh, are a little vague in the book. As a matter of fact, now that we're on this, let's talk about Leonardo uh, as a person. Is Dan Brown the first person, to your knowledge, who, who's ever suspected Leonardo of, of having this connection to this secret society or of being a, a mystic or anything like that? Well, there's been a lot of speculation on Leonardo because he was such a, an interesting and um, eccentric person. And I think it's quite possible that he put all kinds of symbolism and secret things into his paintings. But I strongly suspect that they were they were personal to him and had nothing to do with a secret society. For one thing, the secret society in the book is a fictional society. Uh, it grew out of a hoax that started in the 1960s. So, you know, that, that alone there. But da Vinci himself is a very interesting person. Uh, how connected was he with the traditional religion of his time? That's hard to say. Um, some of the quotations, uh, Dan Brown gives some misquotes Da Vinci a couple of times in the book. There is one place where Da Vinci is talking about, oh God, I'm trying to remember. Um, he's talking about blind faith and how people follow things uh, without, without uh without understanding or without trying to understand. And the actual entire quote doesn't refer to the Church, it refers to people who refuse to study mathematics. So there's that. I don't really know. Da Vinci certainly left uh, money for masses for his own soul. He paid for masses for his housekeeper's soul when she died. He, on the surface, I don't think he was a very good churchgoer, uh, and he probably had a very idiosyncratic idea of religion, but I don't think it was a major factor in his life. Even with uh, his paintings, even with uh, The Last Supper, uh, would not that, wouldn't you not expect that that uh, was created from some seed of, of great devotion, or was it just... That's well, it was created because he was, he was paid for it, but um, how he did it it's hard to say. He certainly searched for for people, he faces that that conformed to his idea of the apostles. Uh, he he combed streets till he finally found the right face to to imitate for Judas, for instance. And I'm sure that he was that that all of the, the the religion that was part of the society was certainly part of his life too. I just don't know. He didn't leave any devotional works or any comments about his religion. He seemed to be totally interested in understanding the world around him, in making things work. It just wasn't a big, it doesn't seem to have been a big factor in his thinking. Sure. And let's talk about Constantine. Uh, I know he's a very controversial figure in Christianity. Uh, some people hail him as being the great liberator of Christians in Rome and, and Europe and the world. And other people, uh, I've, I've heard uh, Protestants refer to him as truly the first pope. 
Uh, what's your take on Constantine? Well, Constantine is, again, um, a difficult figure, and, and you're quite correct. There's so much debate about him, among scholars particularly. One is, of course, how Christian was he? And we really can't say. He may have... I, I, I personally, and this is just a, a kind of a gut reaction to what I've read about him, I have the feeling that he really never quite disassociated uh, Jesus from the sun god. He just... It, I think in his mind there, there there was some kind of connection between them. Now, but I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, Constantine did have a great deal to do with Christianity being adopted by the Roman Empire, and in you know that could have been the saving or the destruction of Christianity, depending on how you look at it. That's a, that again is something that's opinion, and opinion is something that will always be debated. Sure. Uh, what about? Uh, some historians historians have said that he was adamant that the Church come up with one clear vision of who Jesus was, and it had to conform with his vision of who Jesus was. I think the first part is probably true. The second part, no. I um, Definitely my impression from the council, he, he attended two councils, Arles and Nicaea, both of which uh, made pretty much the same came to pretty much the same conclusions, although the same things were debated for centuries afterwards. But I think Constantine was just worried that the Church was fragmenting into so many different little sects. Practically every family had a different take on the religion. And he wanted, if it was going to be a state religion, he wanted, he needed state, he needed uh, a set of, of doctrine to abide by. And I don't think he really cared there doesn't, there isn't any indication that that it mattered to him what they came came up with. He just wanted them to come up with something. That's interesting because uh, wasn't the state religion prior to Christianity, you know, Roman paganism? Well, actually, the state religion was the worship of the emperor. Yeah, that, of course, but I mean <laughs> yeah. that was considered pagan worshiping. Well, a yes, man but as pagan a God. is such a loose term; it could be anything. Okay. So, so the main thing was. Um, yeah, you know, people could believe an awful lot of different religions within the, um, and they could be, they could have been Christians too. The only problem, as I'm sure you remember from your martyr stories, with Christians and with Jews too, is they were an um, exclusive religion, so they would not sacrifice to the the local gods who protected the city, and they would not sacrifice to the emperor. And that they could have been, they could have stayed Christians, they could have stayed Jewish, if they had simply been willing to be inclusive and, and worship the emperor as well. And this was very hard for people who were quite happy with the number of gods to understand. Right, and so my question is that if the, if the previous state religion was as loose as we understand it to be, why was Constantine so focused on, on making sure that it became dogmatic? that the, 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 the uh, points of view uh, were all in line with one another. Oh, I see. Well, it, it's, that's really um, something that I can't answer in a short answer, but it did have to do with the stabilization of the empire in his mind. Remember, he was, uh, he was a Western person who had taken over the empire. He was a usurper, really. He had just moved the capital to a new place, he needed a good power base, and he couldn't do that if um, these Christians that he ha- had decided to support were, you know, as as were all fighting among themselves all the time. Ah, yes, I'm sure there was quite a bit of that. Now, this is a very simplistic answer. You understand? There's I understand. Much more complicated than that. <laughs> and what about the uh, the charge that he really was the first pope? Oh no, I think that's nonsense. No, I mean even the there there was no pope really. Although you know there is a line of of names and so forth, but I I think the first real pope was Gregory the first in the in the fifth century. There were bishops of Rome before that, right? And say? they were not called popes. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Listen, we're coming down to the wire right now, Sharon, but uh, I would like to invite you back next week, and we can continue this very fascinating conversation about the Da Vinci Code. Well, thank you. I'd love to come back. All right.
The name of the book we're talking about this week is The Real History Behind the Da Vinci Code. Our guest is Sharon Newman, and we're going to continue this next week. So please join us. My name is Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, and we hope you'll join us again here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. week we began our very fascinating conversation with Sharon Newman on her book, The Real History Behind the Da Vinci Code. If you've read The Da Vinci Code and you're as puzzled as so many other people are, if you're wondering where uh, fiction ends and facts begin or vice versa, this is a wonderful work for you to have. Uh, it, is, it goes uh, um, subject by subject in, I believe, alphabetical order or some, yep, alphabetical order. It's a, it's a fine read, and even for people such as myself who have not read The Da Vinci Code, I've found it quite fascinating. Sharon Newman is a longtime member of the Medieval Academy. She served on the advisory board for the Medieval Association of the Pacific and is a Ph.D. candidate at UC Santa Barbara. And Newman's Medieval French Mysteries have garnered a McCavity Award. And she has been a guest here on Common Threads before, and we're glad to have her again. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Okay, last week uh, we, we covered all sorts of territory, talking about uh, the Da Vinci Code, obviously, and uh, we, we hit a few of the subjects where you thought that Dan Brown was a little off-kilter, and you provided uh, some light on some of the subjects, such as uh, of Da Vinci, of the Apocrypha, and Constantine, and I wanted to move a little uh, farther into the book, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. And uh, one of the things, of course, you spend a, a, a nice uh, several pages on the Gnostics, and I know that there has been a, a great resurgence of interest in the Gnostics, especially since the Nag Hammadi Library was discovered and uh, many of the, of the uh, Gospels, uh, the accounts of Jesus have been translated and published. Uh, tell us your take on the Gnostics. Who were they? Well, the Gnostics were not, for one thing, they, what, it's easier to say what they weren't. They were not an organized group. They were basically, uh, that was, it was basically a name put on uh, a, a particular philosophy, which was not necessarily Christian. It could, there, there are pagan Gnostics as well. The idea is that one doesn't need books or uh, bishops or priests to reach the uh, divine, but that one one deals in personal re revelation. So there are certainly Gnostics alive today who wouldn't dare call themselves that. But that's that's the main part of it. It's uh, of the idea is a visionary culture. It's also um, most of the Gnostics were also what they call dualists, which means that they believed that there is uh, usually a good god and an evil god, not not just god and satan but if they are god and satan they're equally powerful and the evil god made everything that's flesh and the good god made everything that's spirit 
That's so interesting because I know a lot of people who would call themselves Gnostic today uh, uh, would be more monist. They would acknowledge that all is one. Uh, so is that a, a real departure from the ancient Gnostic understanding? Yes, that would be completely um, against the ancient Gnostic ideas. The, the, most of the Gnostic literature um, that, that you find in the in the Nankamadi books and in other Gnostic literature that has been uh, retained elsewhere really emphasizes the, the evilness of the flesh and the desire of the spirit to escape from the flesh. And would you suspect that some of the Gnostics were, uh, uh, let's say, Christianized pagans, not, not that they necessarily uh, converted in the same way that other people did, but kind of like Christmas Day, we talked about that. The, uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 they took a pagan festival and just put a Christian name on it. Was, was Gnosticism uh, alive and well before Jesus, and then all of a sudden people said, hey, there's this person Jesus, and he really seems to to uh, uh, be talking about what we're talking about. I, I realize that's a very simplistic way of, of putting yes, this question. Actually, I have, I'm not really sure, because there's so little that was written um, beforehand. I think that there were certainly pagan Gnostics who were not called Gnostics, who who still had, you know, they, had, they were called by specific uh, denominations within paganism or so forth, but um, I, I, that's, it's really, that's a really hard question, I think, because it's so hard to understand really where people are coming from and, and where they, what they're thinking of, no matter what they say or, or write. But certainly the Nankamadi books contain several, um, several documents that are completely pagan with no Christian overtones. And would you say that what we call the Gnostic Gospels, is that, is that a fair title for them? Were these the Gospels that the Gnostics used as opposed to the canonical books? They, well, first of all, I wouldn't call them Gospels. They, as I said, so many of them are not at all attached to Christianity. Some of them, um, I think there was a, oh God, a translation of Plato in there. The Feast of Sophia is, has nothing to do with Christianity. It ha- it's completely dualist. Um, there are things in there which are Christian, and this is what people have focused on, the, what is now called the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary. Those are titles that, later, that have been put on these books in the 20th century. They're, they're not called that. Do they, have any, do they have any titles, or are they just, no, they're just manuscripts? No. Yeah. Hmm. And do you know if the Gnostics also used the canonical books at all in their study? I have no idea. Uh, there's no way of telling. Ah. Tell us, uh, of course, Mary Magdalene plays uh, a great role in, uh, in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, fact from fiction here, uh, we know that she existed. We know that uh, she was one of the close disciples of Jesus, but you know the question is how close, and was she in fact uh, uh, the the mother figure of the apostles and all that? What uh, do you have any light to shed on that? Well, I think um, the problem is the first thing you said. We know that she existed. We know that there was um, a disciple of Jesus named Mary of Magdala, but the person that we think of today as Mary Magdalene, is really a composite of several women in the Bible, plus um, a third-century saint who may or may not have really existed either. And this this blending of all these women probably started within two or three hundred years after the death of Jesus and was solidified in people's minds by about the sixth or seventh century, although there's all, the theologians and the the doctors of the church actually knew the difference among all of these women. But again, we're talking folk legend, and the folk legend is what won. So Mary of Magdala has been confused with Mary of Bethany, who was the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She's been confused with the women at the well, the woman with the alabaster jar, the woman taken in adultery. Everybody has become Mary Magdalene. <laughs> kind of a little little club. Uh, yes. <laughs> Too many Marys. So, who is the Mary of Magdala that is in the Da Vinci Code? Well, of of the, all of those women that you've mentioned, is it's there... It's the mixture. It's the mixture that's in the Da Vinci Code. It's the, 
It's the idea of Mary Magdalene as um, prostitute, but also Mary as apostle to the apostles, Mary as the sister of Lazarus. It's all in there. And, of course, the prostitute part of Mary uh, came from two mixes. One is that uh, she may have been the woman that he, that Jesus drove seven demons out of, although that has nothing to do with prostitution. But there was a third-century Egyptian saint, Mary, who lived in Alexandria, who was a repentant prostitute, who became a hermit. And this Mary was confused with Mary Magdalene as well, or at least her story was added on to Mary Magdalene's story. It's sort of like King Arthur. Whoever King Arthur was, also all of these things have been added on to him. So until it's very difficult to find the real Arthur, oh, it's uh, very difficult to find the real Mary too. Right. We had the author of uh, the Gospel of uh, Mary Magdala uh, on uh, sometime oh within the last couple of years here on this program, and and I asked her. Uh, if there was any evidence at all of uh, the the idea of Jesus and uh, Mary being being married, and she said there's not one shred of of real evidence, and I know you agree with that too, correct? Yes, yeah. There's no evidence that Jesus was ever married to anybody. Where does where does Dan Brown make that leap? Is there anything in the stories? He makes that leap. No, it's from a book that um, was uh, written about twenty, little over twenty years ago. And in this book, it's, which, oh, it's, it's a, it, it purports to be nonfiction, but it's actually extremely badly researched. And again, it's based on a hoax that was uh, formulated in France in the 1960s by uh, a man who was very bright, but thought that he ought to be king of France. And one of the things he believed was that he was a descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And that's where it started in the 1960s. This is what Dan Brown was using his research. Right, right. Okay, T- tell us a little bit about that story. That sounds fascinating. Well, <laughs> I almost hate to repeat it because it's, um, according <laughs> to this, well, there, okay, there is a legend. That's, that's the, the interesting thing. There is a, a legend, an old French legend, which started in about the 10th century, that Mary Magdalene, um, or Mary of Bethany, uh, with, her, with Lazarus, and her sister Martha and St. Maximin and a few other people came to France after the crucifixion, uh, fleeing from the Romans and so forth, uh, in a boat without a rudder. Now, in these medieval legends, Mary is, uh, she's a a very much revered saint. She is considered to have been an ex-prostitute for various reasons. She's also, though, considered to be the apostle to the apostles. She's a preacher. She converts people. She does miracles. She does all of these things. Now, by the time of the 1960s, she's been relegated again. Uh, part of the idea was that she was not in the, the medieval legend just says that she was an apostle. The modern legend says that she was also the wife of Jesus and bring, brought his child with her. So I consider that the modern legend has made Mary less uh, important than the medieval one, because now she's just the mom who's, who's keeping the bloodline going. Which of course is important, but it's not everything. Right, and and obviously, if these French kings were the the issue of Jesus, they sure didn't act like it. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and he definitely picked the. I mean, he picked the Merovingian kings who were polygamous <laughs> and uh, you know tended to the, to murder each other to make sure you know to to make sure of the succession and so forth. They weren't they weren't what I would pick certainly. Yeah, but it, but there is I haven't found, and perhaps there is a, there's a, a later legend. But I haven't found anything before the 20th century that suggests that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. It's a 20th century legend, invention. And I'm assuming these French kings made their wine the old-fashioned way? Yeah. There you go. Uh, let me ask you this. You have a, a, a chapter on the papacy slash the Vatican. And I found this quite fascinating because you you have a lot of history to support you. You mentioned that um, uh, last week, I think you said that Pope Gregory, was it the seventh? You consider the, the first. Uh, excuse me, Pope Gregory the first. You consider to be the first pope. How are you dis- defining the word pope? I'm considering, well, in this case, I'm consider, um, considering the pope as someone who... Um, has an has authority outside of Rome, and that people send to for infor, uh, for decisions. 
for final decisions. And even then, Gregory Gregory is now considered a, an authority. He wrote a great deal. He was um, extremely instrumental in restoring the city of Rome after uh, the Gothic invasions and so forth. So he he's the most um, dominant uh, pope. I don't actually think he was called pope yet, though. I think he was still bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, if you're just joining us, you're listening to WGVU. This is Common Threads, and I'm Fred Stella. We're talking with Sharon Newman and her book, The Real History Behind the Da Vinci Code. I think you're very good at being able to separate uh, uh, fact from faith. There are sometimes, uh, I think last week's program, you just said, no, this is a matter of faith, and you just sort of let it alone. Am I, am I correct that that's pretty much how you do business? Yes, I, I certainly can't. Faith is, is something that can't be proven. That's the, that's the definition of faith. So I'm a historian. I can only say what there's evidence for, and anything beyond that is faith. Exactly. So there are people, there are Roman Catholics today who have faith that, say, Peter was in fact the first pope. Uh, but in, in your chapter here, you really give some good evidence to, to show otherwise. Am I correct? Well, yes, certainly there, there's the apostolic tradition of handing down the, the mantle from Peter, directly from Peter, and that's very important to Catholicism. So, you know, in some ways you could say, yes, there is apostolic tradition, but as a historian, just looking at the influence that the bishops of Rome had, and the fact that there, sometimes, especially during the early years, there wasn't a bishop in Rome, or sometimes two, um, you know, as a... From a historical point of view, the papacy it wasn't that important. How do uh, Catholics uh, uh, look at? They they take the same history. How do they uh, interpret it differently from you? Do you know? Well, the Catholic historians don't. Oh, they <laughs> I mean, don't. I know, I know many Catholic historians who are well aware of all of this. Um, they they are able to separate fact from faith, and they simply, they, they see apostolic tradition as, as something a little more um, philosophical, I guess, rather than, than literal. I see. Okay. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the chapters that you deal with has been getting a, a lot of press as of late, at least the people in the chapter have been getting a lot of press as of late, and that is the fine folks in Opus Dei. Uh, uh, probably because they found such great favor with uh, Pope John Paul II. And yeah. and prior to that, they were just sort of the, you know, the cousins we kept we kept up, up on the hill, didn't talk about too much. Um, who were they? And uh, perhaps who, who are they now, if there's any difference? Well, one difficulty with Opus Dei, uh, as I said, as a historian trying to find out what's going on today, maybe that's why I'm a historian, um, the, the history of Opus Dei is, is that of a, it was founded by a Spanish priest, um, Jose Maria, and all of a sudden, I'm sorry, it's still early for me, um, I'm oh. blanking on his last name, but anyway, it's founded by a Spanish priest. Um, Escriva. Escriva. Escriva, yes, of course. I kept thinking Echevarria, and I knew that wasn't right. Jose Maria Escriva. And, um, it was intended to be an organization for, a very conservative organization for lay Catholics. It was also very much attached to Spanish nationalism, as Spanish Catholicism has been for centuries. Um, I've read the works that Escriba wrote himself, his directions to, uh, for the formation of his, uh, of the group, but, I've and I've also read books about Opus Dei written by people outside or people who have left Opus Dei. And the real problem is that there is such a wide divergence of opinion, and you can take the same information and interpret it in completely opposite ways. So it's, it's very difficult to figure out what Opus Dei really is today and what it's doing. Oh, any idea why uh, Pope John Paul II uh, encouraged them as much as he did? Oh, that's I think, is, is fairly well understood, is that John Paul II was vehemently against communism and felt that anybody who opposed communism, as, of course, 
um, something that began in fascist Spain would have opposed communism. Uh, Opus Dei at at the at that time was was very important in in helping him uh, prevent the spread of communism. What about the uh, the charges that it's very cultish? I mean, obviously, if uh, there has to be something to that, I'm not saying that they. Uh, well, of course, the word cult is a very charged word. A very right. Opus Dei very well could be a cult. That doesn't mean that they hypnotize you and keep you in a closet for five weeks and feed you bread and water. Um, um, but it also the the term cult and the and the description used for uh, Opus Dei uh, sometimes is, there are charges of nefarious activities, and that's the problem. There are charges of nefarious activities. Opus Dei is a secretive organization, but of course they also say that they're a private organization. They they are lay people. They're not. They they do have a priest and. Part of the accusations are based on the fact that they they have um, houses of people who live in what seems like a um, monastic or or a cult like um, organization with uh, that who are uh, obedient to a superior who seem to be completely obedient to a superior. But on the other hand, you could say the same thing about monks in a monastery. So it's very difficult to figure out what the truth is. I have emotional reactions to it, but that doesn't mean that I actually know. So I don't think my opinion is any more valid than anyone else's who studied it. My guess is, uh, again, not having read the Da Vinci Code, that they don't get a, a really great wash in, in the book. The Dan no, Brown probably don't. doesn't treat them generously. No, no, not at all. Uh, how do they figure into the mix? Well, uh, one of the evil characters is a, a monk from Opus Dei who is um, a criminal who's uh, an albino, well, it's a little over the top, but that's that's good in a thriller. Uh, he's an albino criminal who was taken in by Opus Dei and converted and now will do anything they ask him to. So in that sense, this character is definitely acting as if he were in a cult. But the, he is a fictional character. What real people do, I can't. I haven't been able to figure out. And uh, does not Opus Dei answer directly to the Vatican, as opposed to local local bishops and all that? Yes, they're they're a personal prelature, and they they I think they may be the only one existing now. But it's I think the, the Society of Jesus. Uh, I don't know if the Jesuits are or not. The, well, I know that Opus Dei and the Jesuits, uh, in general, are not on friendly terms. No, I... <laughs> yes, but um, I'm not really sure. That's not something that I've studied. Uh, the, the, the Jesuits are so far out of my time, period, normally. I I do know that, that Cluny, uh, in the Middle Ages, it was very common for, like, the Order of Cluny to be and to answer only to the popes and not to the bishops. That um, that, But they did know how to work within and... and keep the bishop surprised of what was going on. I think that with Opus Dei, because they have their own priests and so forth, people, people who are members of Opus Dei are encouraged to go to those priests for confession, for instance, and, and to bypass um, the priests of their parish. Yes, yes, and not to mix with other people, including other Catholics, am I correct? Well, not to marry, at least. Mm-hmm. But they are. I'm certain they mix with other Catholics. They, 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 and they do try. They are, do seem to be actively trying to convert people, although not. And that's one of the things that they they seem to be very subtle about their conversion. Oh, really? What what is their method? You know? Yeah. Um. They, their main method seems to be to establish houses near uh, Catholic colleges or colleges where. where that's right. Are. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Right. Yes. And they. Um, and and so they have social things, and they don't really say what they are until they've pulled people in a bit. Uh, they certainly pe they don't force people to convert to Opus Dei, but there seems to be some kind of concerted effort to convert. That mm -hmm. doesn't make them a cult, but again, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Sure. People have had different experiences with them, and people have told me different of different experiences with them, and they're not all the same. 
Exactly. I think if you have, uh, whether you're in a, a cult depends on your, your mental your mental makeup and <laughs> your psychological makeup. To some people, yeah, this is cultish activity. To others, oh, we're just one big happy family. Right. I, I, and, sp- and I have heard both. both. And, and there are people in Opus Dei who have written me and said, you know, really, we're, I, I'm, we don't do things like you, uh, you say, although I certainly in the, uh, the directives of the founder of Opus Dei, they're supposed to be doing some of the things that I said in my book. I quote from him extensively rather than just what other people have told me, but um, you know, that they are free to come and go as they like, that they're under no pressure, that they don't have feel, feel that, uh, the, that the church is trying to control, the, to control them or to, uh, to uh, make them do anything. So some people feel that way, some people don't. I don't know. I really haven't been able to find out. And as a historian, I won't make a definite statement unless I'm sure. Sure. Aren't they the progeny of the Inquisitors, though? No, no. They're not. No, it's it's a completely different thing. Oh no! You know what I was thinking of? It was the it was that particular body that the current pope, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he he was the head of that um, that uh, commission on doctrine, which was uh, or which is the progeny of the Inquisitors. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, you know, a, a cleaned up version, a nicer oh. nicer version. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Inquisition, Inquisition simply means inquiry. Uh, right, I understand that, certainly. So it's, it was really, uh, the inquiry, was, the Inquisition originally was simply to find things out. It wasn't to, to ferret out evildoers. Right, right, that, that evolved a little later. Uh, Sharon, we are uh, plumb out of time right now, but I want to thank you so much for a fascinating conversation both this week and last. Uh, Sharon Newman's uh, book is The Real History Behind the Da Vinci Code, and it is, uh, I want to give the, uh, it is uh, Berkeley Books out of New York, and it's on sale where you would expect books to be on sale. Sharon, thanks again so very much. It's been great. Well, it's been fun talking to you. My name is Fred Stella. This is Common Threads here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. <laughs>